Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. The scripture reading for the second Sunday in the season of Lent is from Mark 8, 31 through 38. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been thinking a lot about coins this week in part because uh, this message is so contrary to last week's message. Last week's message was uh, a message about grace. It was a message about Jesus' baptism, how he went into the waters and it received this blessing from his Father, this, this act of grace that's now given to us, that we are people of grace, undeserved favor from God. And this grace meets us before we have earned anything. And then we have this week's message, which seems to be so contrary. It seems like on just... First glance, it just seems almost like it's said from a different person with a different agenda. And the more I've thought about it, I think it's beautiful that these two messages are coming back to back. Because one message is about God's extreme grace. And then it's the message of our response to that grace by just radical following of Jesus. These aren't two contrary messages. They're just two sides of the same coin. And so for us, as we think about these words that seem almost harsh in nature, uh, it's important for us to remember what came first. What comes first is always God's grace in our life. But then it meets us where we are, and then it calls us to live differently. Both sides of this coin, although they seem different, they're the same coin, and that coin is about deliverance, about how to live a life of significance. The the word disciple is something that you only hear in churches nowadays. To be a disciple means to be a student. That's what it simply means. But for us, maybe a better, maybe maybe a, a more appropriate word would be an apprentice. Apprentice is someone who spends time with a master to watch how they do something, to learn from them, to to study their life so that maybe one day they could learn the master craft and go off and do it on their own. And so for Jesus, he gathered these apprentices and spends three years living his life in full view of them all so that maybe afterwards they could go into this world doing the same master craft that Jesus was already doing. 
redeeming the world. And so for us, we find in this, in this lesson of the apprenticeship of Jesus, we find a primary lesson that Jesus teaches, and it's a hard one. The call of Christ is to lay down your life. Does anyone else want to go back to last week's message? It confronts us. Uh, but we cannot just stay in the waters of baptism. We have to leave. We have to go into this world. And this, too, is good news. It's hard good news, but good news. Peter struggled with this word. We see this in verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter, I love this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. Notice the verbs that Jesus was using to describe his life. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, oh, and to make it even better, killed. These three verbs are something that we probably are going to dodge in our life. Suffering, rejection, being killed. And Jesus is saying, this is the master plan. So, of course, Peter would be baffled by this. Of course, he would say, no, 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 there has to be a different way. In another account of this story, in Matthew's gospel, what Peter actually said to Jesus was, never. Jesus, this will never happen to you. Why did, Jesus, uh, why did Peter have this response? Jesus gives us a clue in verse 33 when G, uh, Jesus said this to Peter. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The problem was that Peter's concerns were, were human. It was, it was himself. And it's not God's concerns. It's not God's vision. It's not God's dreams. I believe in part of it, it was this, that these disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. They left their families, they left their work, they left their old identity, and they, they left it all kind of in a gamble that Jesus would be the Messiah, the one who would be the Savior. And what is revealed in this passage is that God's idea of salvation is going to be different than their idea of salvation, their idea of salvation had to do with the worldly things, the human concerns that they had. Rome had, came, had come into Israel, conquered Israel, turned it over, and they had ruled over Israel. And these people, these, these disciples, these followers, were hoping that God would send a Savior who would rise up, kick out the Romans, and rule as a king over Israel. So... Later on, when one of the disciples are bickering with each other of who's going to sit on the right and the left of Jesus when he comes into his glory, what they're talking about is thrones. They're actually thinking about when Jesus rises in glory, who's going to sit on his right and his left. And they are so, so, so far away from God's plans. So it doesn't make sense when Jesus is saying, okay, so here's the plan. I'm not going to rise up in power. I'm not going to conquer the Romans. I'm not going to, you're not going to find me in palaces I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. It just didn't compute. They had already created their plan for, for God. They assumed what God would do for them. 
And this is a dangerous thing that we all do. We assume what God is going to do. I've once heard it said that God created us in his image, and then we returned the favor. We, return, we returned the favor by creating God in whatever image that we have of ourselves and our wishes. These disciples were guilty of making God in the image they preferred. They made Jesus into a nationalist who would become a powerful king. And we too are guilty of making God into whatever we want, however we see ourselves. Whatever picture we have of ourselves, we portray on Jesus. A really good example of this is a picture that I've seen of Jesus. Go ahead and show that. Look at, look at Jesus here. Could you get more Caucasian? I mean, he's, he's pastier than I am. So just so we know, uh, Jesus didn't come from Omaha, Nebraska. Just want to... He's from the Middle East, Jewish. This shows just how easily we might, even subconsciously, fashion Jesus into ourselves, into our wants, into whatever makes us comfortable. We might even create a version of God that's like a vending machine. We pop in the right numbers, we do the right things, and he gives us, doles out whatever thing we feel like we deserve. We might fashion Jesus into Santa, rewarding the good boys and girls by giving them gifts and punishing the bad little boys and girls by giving them coal. Never seen, though, just always slipping away a little too early. We might fashion Jesus into being a nice Boy Scout, just a good, virtuous person. This seems to be the disciples' problem. Their expectation and their view of Jesus did not include death and a cross. So they rejected Jesus' idea. And just want to share that God is quite fine existing outside our comfort zone. God is quite okay existing outside of our expectations and our control. I think that we're living in a time now where the church has to take a hard look in the mirror of who we've made God into. What is our reputation, even in this, in this nation? Who have we made God into? What have we made the gospel into? How have we distorted this? Walter Brueggemann, he's a, a theologian, and just I'm going to share a warning. This is a little bit of a gut punch. He shared this quote that hit me this past week. For I believe the crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative, which is the polls we put the church in today, liberal or conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the faith and discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common generic U.S. identity that's part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, part affluence. What Brueggemann seems to be saying here is the problem in the American church is not external. It's internal. It's a discipleship issue. It's what we are doing in our apprenticeship of following Jesus. As much as we would love to deflect all our issues with this world, we have to wonder, how have we distorted the gospel to be something that it's not? Or in other words, from the words from this passage how have we made it into human concerns and not God's concerns? Something has to move us out of this distorted religion. Something has to move us outside of our comfort and our ease that's a Christian life up to the right, to the right and up top. 
Do you know what that thing is? It's what it's always been. It's the cross. Verse 34, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, uh, this gets so challenging. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. How do you think the, the crowds responded? Yay! Let's follow him. That sounds like a plan. It would make no sense for Jesus to say, let's take up our cross, everybody. If you want to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross. The cross was the Romans' version of an execution machine. Not even theirs. It's someone else's. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you got to take that up. you got to deny yourself. you got to follow me. This is a great way to, to thin out your crowd. It doesn't seem like Jesus really cared for popularity. He had something more important in mind. The cross is the signature of Jesus. It's the marker and the requirement for those people who want to follow Jesus. There's no following Jesus without picking up a cross. And what is the cross? The cross is, displays the power in surrendering oneself for the benefit of others in obedience to God. Again, who wants to go to last week's message? So we should take it seriously when Jesus says this next verse, verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So, so counterintuitive. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? As Henry Nouwen said, it to follow Christ is a life of downward mobility. Further and further down. The more you walk with Jesus, the further you go. And wise is the one who loses their life, for they will find it, and they will find their soul. Another way to put it is the Christian life is marked not by acquisition, getting more, acquiring more. Christian life is actually marked by surrender. It's not about acquiring more knowledge, even acquiring more memory verses, acquiring a powerful position, Acquiring, uh, you know, friends and wealth and recognition. The Christian life is about surrender. It means to take all of your life and lay it out before God and say, God, I no longer claim any of this. Any of this. It's all yours. I surrender it all to you. Okay, God, you get one more layer of me. Okay, God, I'm, I'm handing over one more area of, your, of my life. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm letting go of control over all of my life. I have the next relationship, I give over my workplace. I give over uh, my, my, my job loss. I give over my marriage. I give over my, my bank account. I give over my sex life. I give over my insecurity, my calendar, my home, my plans, my regrets. I, 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 got, I just think that this life you're calling me to live is about surrendering it. I give it all to you. This is the life of following Christ. And if we are going to grow in our ability to surrender ourselves to Jesus, it's not that we have to leave everything behind, but we have to leave behind our claim of everything. This is losing oneself. This is Christian maturity. Rick Warren, his best-selling book, The Purpose-Driven Life, famously started with a line. Does anyone know the first line in The Purpose-Driven Life? 
Life is not about you. A friend uh, and a member of our church, uh, he said he started this. He said I started reading this book six times. I never got past the first sentence. <laughs> he said I I didn't like that. I want life to be about me. But life is not about you, and this is for your own good. God asked oneself to lay down themselves, uh, not only for this world's sake, but also for your sake. Because some of the saddest people I know in this world are the most self-centered people. We know this. We see this in this world. And who are the people with the greatest joy? People who seem to have an open hand in life, who surrender themselves and serve wholeheartedly. There's a joy that's reserved for them that many of us can't touch, that this world can't get after. Jesus said, what is good is it if you were to gain the whole world but lose your what? soul. This is about your own good. Contrary to what we might think, our souls were not fashioned for acquisition. Our souls were fashioned for surrender. It's what we need. Brendan Manning, who wrote one of the most powerful books on grace, the Ragamuffin Gospel, uh, I highly encourage it to you if you need a study on grace. Uh, He wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, and he followed it with a book about the cross. He called it the signature of Jesus. And in it, he said this, To be a Christian is to be like Christ. Somehow we must lose our life in order to find it. Christianity preaches not only a crucified God, but also crucified men and women. This is a quote from Galatians 6.14. May I never boast in, in, may, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is no discipleship without the cross. I'm not a follower of Jesus if I live with him only in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, and not in Gethsemane, in the garden, or on Calvary, where the cross was put into the ground. Jesus is calling us to find our life by losing it. And we have to ask the question, are we doing it? So I just want to give you one challenge. There's a lot of things we could talk about. But I just want to give you one challenge this week, and it's this. I think this dramatically could change our life. Our challenge is to learn to distrust self-preservation, control, and comfort. Distrust it. It's going to speak to you. It's wired, hardwired in us. And we, as followers of Jesus, we have to learn to say, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to trust that. Why? Because there's too much at stake. A desire for self-preservation, control, and comfort. You can choose which of these. Maybe we should just start with one of these. Maybe for some of you, control, that's mine. I want to take that on this week. It comes as naturally. These three come as naturally as breathing for us. But Jesus calls us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. We have to put to death the things that we feel like we're entitled to. So when these impulses come up, you can say these words, get behind me, Satan. Although we don't, we, uh, I heard someone say that to donuts coming in this morning when someone was off, get behind me, Satan. It's okay to say, get behind me. And I I think there's a reason why Jesus said that. I think because he actually needed to, to have that be behind him. He needed to put his gaze somewhere else. He needed to look upon something else. 
And for us, the only hope that we are to move beyond self-preservation, control, and comfort is if we're looking at something more beautiful, if we're actually looking at something that's more grand and inspiring. So for us, what would we get to look at? We get to look at Jesus. He not only calls us to do this, but he actually did this himself. That's the kind of leader and the Savior that Jesus is. He showed us the way. And so we, as we follow Jesus, we have to keep our eyes on him. Not on the worldly human concerns that we might have within our own souls, but on Jesus. Being in College Station, I had some friends who grew up on farms. And uh, so in college, we would take road trips often. And one of my favorite things to do on a road trip was just to, to watch the scenery, just to take it in and listen to some good music. At that point, I think it was Counting Crows was the, the song choice for us. And we were driving around this highway, and I made this comment once that uh, as we were driving, that these, you know, if you ever had this experience where you're looking at a field and it looks scattered, and then you look perpendicular to you, and it's just perfect lines. And I made a comment like, man, isn't that incredible how perfectly, uh, per- perfect they draw these lines? And my friend said, you know how they do that? And I was like, no. He's like, guess. And I said, well, you probably get focused on where you want to put it, and you just stay focused right there. And he said, no, that's not it at all. If you're driving a tractor, you actually don't even look at the dirt. You look at the horizon. You fix your point on one place there on the horizon, and you just drive to it. And it's amazing how straight your lines will become. I look back at that when I was 18 and 19, and I think about it now in my relationship with Christ. And we can look at our, our human concerns, our desires that we have, the self-preservation of control and comfort, or we could fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And as we have our eyes set on him, we start, start drawing out lines in this world that are different. We start carving out a new way of living. In our membership, our covenant community, I ask the question, what do you feel like God's up to for our church? And the most common response was, I feel like God's calling us to step out of our comfort zone. I think so too. I think 2018, what Jesus is calling us, this little church that we started a year and a half ago, I think what Jesus is saying to us is get out your comfort zone. Leave it. Don't trust it. Pour yourself out. Have my concerns. Quit being ashamed. The greatest need of the world today is for people who call upon the name of Jesus to leave the waters of baptism and to turn from their self and to go into this world to serve people regardless of of their religion, regardless of their political persuasion or whatever line we draw between each other, to, that we might pour ourselves out in a life of service, offering hope to this world. This world needs more than anything else for Jesus to be near. And for better or for worse, Jesus' strategy for his nearness is you. That's how Jesus wants it to be done, is us, this church, so it doesn't matter which way the coin lands, whether it be a radical experience of grace or a radical following of Jesus. Both sides are what God wants for us to live this year. Both sides are freedom, that we might die to self and find life anew.